This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Angelica's Discoveries, Romance and Journey to the New World, and the author is Atilia Greco, and Atilia joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Atilia. Oh, hello, Steve. Well, great to have you with us. We're going to talk about this family mystery adventure, Angelica's Discoveries. Let me read a little bit about your book so everyone can understand exactly what we're going to talk about. You say this, high in the Swiss Alps, in a quaint village far away from the chaos and destruction of World War II, Angelica leads an idyllic childhood haunted by only one thing, her fear of the water. But Angelica develops into a strong, independent woman. Her desire to travel becomes overpowering, and she vows to overcome her paralyzing fear one day. Now the chance has come. So this is a book about conquering one's fear, as you say it, and of course this immigration uh, story, adventure story to the United States in the 1970s. Uh, what was the motivation to write your book? Well, the motivation was that uh, there is a lot of... Um things happening in life and sometimes you have a dream as a child and if you have uh, real dreams and you uh, start to think about it and then you set the goal and then you have to go step by step and uh, over an extended time of your life maybe you can realize your idea or, or your wish to travel. That's what uh, I thought it was very important that people, anyone can do that. So growing up high in the Swiss Alps, uh, is this part of the story? Do we learn about this idyllic childhood that Angelica experienced? Yes, we do. We, we hear how she lives in the high mountains and is surrounded by, by deers uh, who uh, follow her to school. And uh, they live out near the woods, so far even from a village. So there is a really idyllic uh, way for a child to grow up with nature. But, a cat, but of course, as every child grows into becoming a teenager, an adult, there's always that desire to, you know, flap the wings and uh, fly into the unknown often, right? Exactly. And so because Angelica's father was telling her a lot of stories about the Greek mythology and about he had a lot of friends coming back from like one friend came back from Sumatra and would tell how he would train elephants to work for him. So this uh, just uh, for the child was very important or for the teenager to hear stories like that. And so the wish and the dream grew in Angelica's brain that she wants to explore the world. And she becomes a travel guide? Yes, and then later she goes and uh, makes art studies in the city of Zurich. 
and uh, she always wants to go abroad, but her parents would not like. Her father always thought, well, she was too young. And even when she was about, I think, about 14, she got a letter from an uncle in United States who told her that when she is a little older, she can come and uh, finish her college studies in United States. So Angelica exclaimed and said, wow, that's exactly what I want. And soon enough, the father said, that's no way. You cannot leave home. You're much too young. You cannot go on the other side of the ocean. And of course, this was not say, a handicap for her because in her brain she knew Uncle Victor lives in Cincinnati and one day I will go there. Why does she fear the water so much? Well, this is something she doesn't really know uh, because in the high Alps there are a lot of lakes, they're cold, and you don't go swimming and either you don't see boats. So she has never understood why she was very terrified of boats. And whenever she saw a boat, she or she had nightmares about boats who would sink or that stuff. She doesn't know why this happened. So um, when she then grew older and wanted to go to Greece as a travel guide after art school, um, she thinks, well, what can I do? I have to go either by boat or I cannot uh, fulfill my wish to visit Greece. So finally, she decides, Angelica decides, that uh, there is one thing she could make, maybe just have her biggest wish, or the greatest wish she has, to, uh, how do you say, adapt it with the worst fear she has. So she needs to go by boat to Greece. But she wants to go to Greece, so she has to board a boat. Now... But this, that's, it's kind of a, of a dilemma. Yes, a great dilemma for her. But somehow she uh, goes on a boat with a very special captain. Yeah, and then finally she signs up to be a travel guide in Greece. And here suddenly she sits in Italy where the, uh, the Greek boat uh, will take a group of 20 people where she's the travel guide. And she has a lot of responsibility and she realized that, my God, what am I doing? I have a group and I cannot show my fear I, and I want to go to Greece. And so she boards the boat and her group is now uh, having dinner and she cannot eat. She feels very uh, upset. So she started railing and thinks, what? why did I ever put my biggest wish with my bigger fear together? And then suddenly... This old, unshaved sea captain, Angelis, who all the other person on board try to avoid him because he's introverted, he's almost an eremite, and he's very harsh. But Angelica suddenly feels his hand on, on her shoulder, and then he says, well, Angel- why? no, she doesn't know her name right now, so she feels the hand on the shoulder and says, uh, girl, you must be very terrified of the water because I see that you are afraid. And she said, no, I'm not. And he said, you don't need to lie because I can see it. And finally, Angelis becomes her best friend because he will tell her and show her how to overcome her fear and overcome uh, her biggest trauma. 
And, of course, they have no idea of an unexpected adventure that awaits them in the unpredictable Mediterranean Sea. Uh, We don't need to go into all the details, but can you give us a little glimpse of that? Well, anyway, they have no idea what happened, but suddenly, uh, to be short, a big tsunami wave hits the boat, and they have to... Angelix is the only one who knows how to cross that big wave and he saves the whole boat and this whole crew. I mean, this gives then Angelic a lot of uh, confidence that Angelis can do everything and anything. And the one thing is why Angelic becomes at that point almost her guardian angel. And nobody can understand why Angelica and Angelis have almost the same name and how they relate to each other. So... Nobody knows who is finally Angelis. Well, and you talk in your book about one of the uh, of reasons you wrote your book, realizing the meaning of coincidences. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about your feeling about that? Yeah, I think uh, Angelica had a lot of coincidence what happened. First of all, why did she meet Angelis on the boat? Why was he here to help her? like a guardian angel, to overcome her fear of the water. And in the whole life Angelica goes, there is one coincidence which follows the next. But she is listening to it, and she listens to her intuition that there is something maybe who will uh, clarify things she always wanted to know. And while she is uh, following her intuitions, she is open to every new adventure. Then, of course, a great adventure coming to America. Yeah, after she has uh, worked in Greece as a travel guide, uh, well, she meets a Greek man, but she realized that's not for her. But later, she, uh, her heart lies with someone else. And when she marries Mark, his first thing is that he wants to emigrate to the United States. And how? By both. Oh, my goodness. Again, Angelica has to face that she has to travel for six days on the open ocean. And she's really worried about, because now she's with her small family, and she's worried how she would do that. And why she's worried, she feels, that she knows, Angelis has died in the meanwhile. She feels again Angelic's hand on her shoulder, and she knows, okay, when he's here, I have to just to trust. And one of, just to trust people, that's it. Right. Trust people, uh, value your friends and family, face your fears. You have these messages, these themes. Uh, and talk a little bit more about searching for the positive in any situation. Well, the, even the positive situation after she boards that boat, which was the boat France, to go to New York, the... Five hours later, the captain of the boat invites them for dinner at their at, in his uh, suite. And why this happens? I mean, that's absolutely coincidence. But Angelica refers that must certainly be because Angelix, the old sea captain in Greece, wants her now to know the captain of this boat, and that means so she can trust that man. So that's a coincidence. Right, another coincidence. And now the, you, 
this there's a theme here in your book about unlocking a family mystery. You don't have to completely tell us everything, but what is going on there? Well, when she was still a child, another story her father told her is was the how his grandfather met his grandmother, and that had to do with a golden hand holding a diamond, which was a piping. So this was another thing Angelica always wanted to know. There must be a mystery behind that. Why was this so important to her grandfather? Finally, after years, she inherits that hand from uh, her father's aunt, who had inherited it, and she gives it to Angelica. And finally, she realized that this hand needs a lot. She, everybody in the family believed that this hand brings some luck to someone. And wearing that hand, she meets, finally, her uncle Victor she wanted to meet when she was 16. And he recognized that hand and said, oh, now I know you are wearing that hand. That means that hand's has a meaning it should keep the family together. So she didn't know that mystery when she was a child, so she found out what happens. And so another coincidence happened that uh, he tells why her grandfather became, uh, received this hand from his sister. And this reveals then a whole story of the family. A part of the family was lost due to a family fit. And finally, she can, at the end of the book, the whole family is reunited again after two generations after they had a fight. Well, you've uh, really pointed out one of the things that you want readers to learn from your book, uh, to believe and trust in one's own power. So there's a great example of that in Angelica. Yes, and I think Angelica... I, I think what Angelica thinks is life is interesting and challenging, and there are so many coincidences that I have sh- that I should be aware of, and I also want to find out some mysteria in a family nobody knew. That was Angelica's uh, point of view. Well, your five key messages in your book: search for the positive in any situation respect others people's way of life, face fears, value your friends and family, and be thankful. Yes. Well, because sometimes, uh, you, you know, more, more or less we all do that. When we see somebody, we judge. And I think that's very wrong. Uh, people should just be taken as they are. And if, if uh, Angelica sees someone, she just accepts them without prejudice. And this leads her to incredible surprises. The title of the book, Angelica's Discoveries, Romance, and Journey to the New World. We've been talking to the author, Atilia Greco. Atilia, tell us how to get your book. Well, our, my book is available by iUniverse.com, and it's available at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. And you can order it at your bookseller. Well, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you, Steve. That was very interesting. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. 
Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle and sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Donna is a charismatic market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore. People have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The History of a Pipe Dream. And the author is Susan Miller. And Susan joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Susan. Hello. Well, this is going to be a very different story, a a woman's autobiography, but uh, obviously as a determined person to tackle just about anything that probably most women wouldn't tackle. Here's your story. Uh, you say this, history of a pipe dream is the story of her struggle to overcome the prejudice that existed and to a certain degree continues to exist regarding women in the field of industrial construction. Susan started out as a common laborer who worked her way up to journeyman, and along the way she got to know people from all walks of life. Uh, she chose uh, this career that challenged her as fiercely as it challenged the perception and prejudices of others. Uh, here's her journey into a world that few women have known, but all women can relate to. Well, that's so very well put that uh, here you are in this world of construction workers, and that's tough for men. I can't even imagine what it is for a woman. It's a challenge for women, and, uh, you know, you've got to stay one step ahead of the men at all times because most of them try and hold you back, and you have to just keep forging ahead and thinking that one day you're going to be treated as an equal. So how did you how did you grow up and and have this kind of develop this kind of interest? Well, I grew up in Wyoming. I, I was born in 1956, and I grew up in Wyoming on a farm. 
And Wyoming was pretty isolated from what was going on in the world with the Vietnam War and, and the, you know, the, the 60s, everything was changing. And I don't know, just growing up in Wyoming, you, you learn to, to forge ahead instead of follow. And, you know, the, the better you did, the better life was. So I guess I always carried that with me. So how did you get interested in pipe fitting? I met Jack when I was 27 years old, and, and I was a bartender. You know, I had, not, I had never gone to college, so I really didn't have any uh, education to get a real good job. And, uh, you know, I had been a nurse's aide and a bartender and worked in a flower shop and all kinds of odd jobs that don't take you anywhere. And uh, he persuaded me to get into a life of, of construction as a pipe fitter because that's what he was. And, you know, after I saw one of his paychecks, well, that, I wanted one, too. <laughs> <laughs> that got your attention. So, yes, it did. Because <laughs> I, you know, thought, well, I could make my dreams come true, you know, with making money like that. I could, I could get a house and, you know, just have a nice life. Do you and think you so were? I, do you think you were a bit naive at the time, though, uh, as a woman going into this dominant male world? Oh yes, oh yes. I, I knew the work would be hard, but. I never expected to be um, held back, you know, because when I grew up, the whole women's movement was going on, and, you know, and I figured, well, women are equal now. There's not going to be a problem. But when I got into it, I just thought, wow, nothing has changed, you know, and uh, it was a struggle, but... It, it was a challenge, and I've always loved a good challenge. Um, it, it made me feel good when, when I could uh, better myself or, or really make the men understand that, no, I'm here to work and make a living. I'm not here to get a husband or flirt with anybody. I'm here to work and learn, learn the, the business. Well, growing up on the farm, you say, really helped you develop a strong character. And uh, speaking of characters, you were a big fan, and probably still are, of John Wayne. You you tried to meet him. What happened? Oh, he came to Cody for when the Buffalo Bill um, Museum opened their Winchester Gun Museum. And he was there to dedicate it over the 4th of July. And I happened to work in a cafe in the airport. And, you know, there you could go to the airport to watch him fly in and everything. Well, we were standing outside behind this barricade. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to stand out here. I can go into the cafe because I work there. And there were only certain people that were allowed inside the airport to you know, shake his hand as he got off the plane and everything. And 
I went in there, and this one woman said, oh, Susan, you know, here, stand right up here, and you can shake John Wayne's hand. And I was like, wow, I'm going to shake John Wayne's hand, you know. And just about the time we got to shake hands, we had eye contact, and, and I had my hand held out, and he had his hand held out. This woman came and just shoved me out of the way, and I landed on the floor. And I still had my... I still had my hand out, and we were still looking at each other, and it was like in slow motion. I just <laughs> fell on the floor. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and John Wayne kept, you know, he was just kind of pushed on further, but he did look back to see if I was okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, that that, in, that one incident really changed my life. I I thought about it, and I still think about it today, you know, how how I let somebody do that to me. And I was determined to never let that ever happen again. Well, did you, uh, did you know this lady that pushed you out of the way? Yes, I did. She was very prominent in Cody, but my mother who baked cakes for extra money, we delivered a lot of cakes to her house. (laughs) My mom was an artist at delivering it baking and decorating cakes that um yeah i i knew her and that's what made me so mad is that you know she kind of used me to make herself look good well along the way trying to uh work in this male dominant field and uh the equality of women and men certainly uh doesn't exist uh, how did you deal with all this uh, emotion? And uh, I mean, did you ever get depressed? Oh yes, you know, um, I, I'd get depressed, and you know, I'd think, well, you know, I'm never going to make it. I'm just never going to make it, you know. But I'd go home and I'd think about it, and I, I'd think, well, you know, the only choice, other choice you have is bartending, and I hated that. Um, so I would just pick myself up and go to work, and, and I would find different ways to, to be defiant. Um, you know, I, at one point I had a foreman, uh, general foreman tell me that, you know, I got passed up for the foreman job because I was a woman, and um, he didn't think I, I could handle it. And so I decided to get him back, and instead of going through him with my decisions on pipe fitting, I would just go up to the engineer. And that way, I'd have the engineer's approval where the general foreman really couldn't say anything or fire me because I was working with the engineer. How often have, and, you, how often have you been uh, in, in consideration to be a foreman and not have it happen? Quite a few times. I, I was good at my work, and sometimes that's a threat to men that that aren't as good as I am, and so it, it threatens them. And and it, you know it, that probably sounds oh egotistical or something, but but it's the truth. It, it threatens them, and so they don't want me to be in charge. And make them look bad. Now, you've been a foreman. Yes, I have. So how was the experience? How did you handle it? And uh, why didn't you continue? 
Um, I love being a foreman because I have this unique way of getting everybody on my crew involved. You know, I don't tell them what to do. We discuss what we're going to do, and we get ideas from each other and then come up with the best way to do a project. And uh, I've sometimes had 20 people on my crew uh, because they really don't want to work for anybody else. But, unfortunately, being a female, I don't get to continue on being a foreman. You know, I'll, I'll be a foreman on one job where I get along with the um, upper supervision, and then I'll, the next job I'll be just a fitter again. It, it depends on the supervision, and usually if I've worked with them before, they'll put me up as a foreman. Now, what about this experience? Uh, somehow you ended up living in your car in Phoenix and you had some terrible incident with the bikers? Yes. I, I When I was 18, my friend and I moved to Phoenix, and, you know, I was determined to uh, make it in the big city, but I found I was all, would always be just a small-town girl. So I moved to Bisbee, Arizona, where another friend of mine was living. And we went to a party. I, I got a ride to a party, and these bikers showed up, and I ended up being raped, and that pretty much changed my life for forever. I It took me a long time to get over it, but at the same time, I turned it into to a positive thing, you know, kind of like the John Wayne thing. I wasn't ever going to let that happen to me again. Um, and and it, it took the innocence out of my life. I, I didn't realize until then that men could be that wicked, that things like that really happened, because I never expected it. I, I didn't think anything that bad really went on in the real world. Well, that's a tragedy. I'm so sorry. I, I didn't know the answer to that or, you know, to my question about that. That is a tragedy. But as you say, those things happen. And uh, yes. you were at the wrong place at the wrong time, I guess. Yes, and I couldn't get out because yeah. the people I had ridden got a ride with wouldn't leave the party mm. and it, it was just an unfortunate incident that I, I didn't really have any way to stop well you have a very strong work ethic you have a very strong uh, image of yourself uh, image of women especially who know what they're doing in this often in this world of men Give us some a little philosophy as we wrap up this interview about the keys to your success. Well, I grew up on a farm where I learned to work hard and overcome the hardships that go with farming. And My parents taught me good morals and how to persevere at times when times were really tough. I knew when I decided to become a pipe fitter that I had to work hard and be the best at my trade. Um, my work ethics helped me become known as a good pipe fitter. Even though I still have a hard time getting hired, I'm proud of what I have accomplished. And, and you know, no matter how hard they try, they can't take that away. I, I am good in my field, and 
and I know this, and this keeps me going. I, I, I know that every time I walk on a job, I'm going to have to prove myself as, as a pipe fitter, as, as a good construction worker, and I know that in the beginning, so I just, I just get out there and prove it. Well, we appreciate you being with us, Susan, on iUniverse Radio. Tell us how to get your book. Well, you can get it through iUniverse, or it is also available at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com, and hopefully we'll be in bookstores soon. We've been talking with Susan Miller. She is the author of her book, History of a Pipe Dream, her autobiography, a very determined woman, and uh, we wish you the best, Susan. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. How to invest, where to invest, where to save, where to get the right insurance, what to do about taxes. Should I relocate my business or ever purchase a property? That's where Go To My Radio Show comes in. Join host Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Choose the right financial professional and learn more about the products and services while learning the terminology and strategies used by these professionals. Go to my radio show is unbiased and Chris Holt, your host, will ask the hard questions and take calls to help you connect with the right professional who can help you better handle your financial and business choices. Go to my radio show is not a financial services company and does not offer any financial advice, but we will help you make the right choice when it comes to planning your financial future. And most of all, choosing the right program and the right professional for you. Go to my radio show with Chris Holt, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamamanyhats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Merely D. And the author is Marion Manso Cheatham. And Marion joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Marion. Morning, Steve. It's nice to talk to you. Well, you're going to thank take you us. Me. Well, thank you for being with us. And you're going to take us back to 1915, uh, a very tragic day, July 24th. Here's what you say about that. The 1915 Western Electric Employee Picnic is the social highlight of the year in Cicero, Illinois. Five steamers wait to ferry 7,000 passengers to the picnic grounds in Michigan City, Indiana. 
And one of the passengers is teenager Dee Pajo. And, of course, she's all excited. She's packed her picnic basket, you say, and prepares to board the SS Eastland. She thinks this is going to be the best day of her life. However, she has no idea that in a matter of hours, tragedy will strike. And this is very tragic because 844 passengers died. My goodness. Yes, it is a big number. It's hard to think about, especially when you're thinking of, like, women, children, kids going to a picnic. Right. Yeah, not sailors on a boat who signed up for it. Now, what was the motivation to write this book? It was actually a a very personal motivation. My grandmother um, had a ticket to that Western Electric picnic that year. She was going with a girlfriend who worked at Western Electric. My grandmother did not work at Western Electric, but she was going as a guest. She had a ticket. And the night before the Eastland, on July 23rd, my great-grandmother had a premonition as I heard she was prone to, and she had a a premonition of disaster and death. And she begged my grandmother, who was an adult at the time, not to go on the trip. And my grandmother listened and stayed home. But, of course, you know, that's a great premise, but I wouldn't have a story if I didn't get my character on the boat. So, of course, my teenage character has great incentive to want to go on this trip. There's a little bit of love going on, and she has a crush on her girlfriend's older brother, and she really wants to go on this this um, picnic. So she runs away and does not listen to her mother and puts herself in danger and, of course, puts me as the writer on the deck of the Eastland. This is fiction, but obviously based on fact. It must have been a difficult research project. It really was. It was, um, it was very heavy. Um, the pictures are very gloomy. It was rainy that whole week. Um, and so just reading the stories, looking at the pictures, it was, it was difficult research. I was, I was really glad when I was nearing the end of the book, um, as much as I loved it, I was happy to, you know, get into something that might have been a little bit lighter and offering some hope and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it was a difficult research. But it was very, very interesting. I mean, I don't think anyone could... Uh, read about the story of the Eastland and not be intrigued. Of course, based on this tragic event, but we get to know the characters. The characters, obviously, uh, in any fictional uh, uh, treatment, very, very important. So tell us about Dee. And, of course, the title, I think, says something, right? Merely Dee. Right, it does. I, I really didn't know what to call the book, but as I was working on my character, she believes she's just merely good enough. And she's surrounded by strong women, her mother, who is very solid and strong and hardworking, and her girlfriend, uh, Mae Kosnecki, her best friend, who is very bold. She's a suffragette, and she, you know, has the freedom and the time, and she gets involved in things. And Dee just works and works and works, and she just thinks she's merely good enough until, you know, she's tested by fate, and then she finds out what her true strength of character is. And then, of course, she's got this crush on mm-hmm. Carol. Right. With Carol is May, her, her best friend May's older brother. And he's, been, um, he's coming along. Uh, you know, he doesn't want to come along, but he's coming along as a chaperone for the two girls who are going single. So uh, May's parents insisted that Carol come along as the chaperone. And, of course, May was not happy to have her older brother, but... Dee is thrilled that Carol is coming, and she's hoping for a whole day to spend with Carol and the possibility of romance. So set up this uh, tragedy uh, accident, or what was the cause, and how quickly did it happen? It happened fairly quickly. The, 
there were five, like you said, there were five steamships um, leased, and the first one to go out was the Eastland. It was a beautiful ship, and everybody wanted to be on it. Of the five, it was the biggest, it was the grandest. It was very popular in Chicago. Um, and the, bo- the ship was boarding at 6.30 in the morning, scheduled to depart at 7.30 a.m. The other ships were going to stagger shortly thereafter, 8, 8.20, that kind of stuff, get people going, because it was a two-hour boat ride around the southern curve of Lake Michigan to Michigan City, Indiana, and the park, Washington Park, which is still there, by the way, and still looks um, fairly awesome if anybody ever takes a trip up to Michigan City, Indiana. But um, they were, you know, everybody wanted to be on this boat. So they were kind of rushing to get on this boat. Now, if you can imagine, it's downtown Chicago, right there near the lake, near the Tribune building and all of that. And the people in Chicago had a regular work-a-day world. Everybody was working six days a week. So that Saturday morning, the city was packed with traffic, a normal Saturday traffic. There were reporters there on hand, and that's why there's so many pictures of this event, because they came to capture what would have been a very happy event and this was the fifth annual so it was building steam and people knew about it but then you had the rush of all these passengers who wanted to get on this boat so it was just a huge crowd of people and they loaded from the gangplanks at the rear of the boat and there were two federal inspectors with little clickers counting off the passengers as they loaded and the Eastland had been licensed that year for 2,500 passengers and they did count very carefully down to the babies, 2,500 passengers, and there were 70 crew and staff, and 2,570 people were ready to go when the ship was supposed to take off at 7.30. But the ship was in trouble from the beginning. It had a ballast tank system at the bottom. It was a very narrow boat coming down to a V, if you can imagine. And the bottom of the ship had ballast tanks that filled with water right left, right, left, and kept, try to keep the boat steady from listing left or right, port or starboard. And um, they, uh, they loaded the boat um, at the s- south side of the pier in Chicago, and um, they unloaded it too quickly, really, because in all the excitement, there was a lot of pushing and shoving. And that was a problem. That was one of those problems. But it wasn't the passengers that caused any of the problems. It was a problem with the ship and the captain. Um, he, the captain, Captain Patterson, liked to go out with the ballast tanks empty. So the chief engineer had the problem of trying to fill the tanks um, as quickly as he could. And the Eastland had one fatal flaw. It had one valve. It could either intake water or it could it let the water out. But it couldn't do both. So the, the engineer down there had to struggle as the boat listed to the right, to the left. He had to put water in the tank or let water out. He had these really difficult decisions. And once the people were on the boat, it was very crowded. There wasn't a lot of movement. There was actually a band, an orchestra playing, but you couldn't even dance. It was so crowded. Um, So we can't say that the passengers were running from side to side. As A lot of people, even here in Chicago, they think the passengers caused it. But the ship was, um, you know, not, not... constructed for an event like this and they shouldn't have been loading that quickly and they shouldn't have never had that number that high of number shouldn't have been certified for that and that's a direct result of the titanic which probably people don't know about Hmm. well that certainly Um, conjures up the image of the titanic i mean obviously a whole different scenario but still so tragic absolutely Uh, those people actually had 
much more time to, you know, to escape. But um, after the Titanic, um, there was a law passed in Congress, lifeboats for all. And what, what it meant is everybody who was on a passenger ship had to have a seat on a lifeboat or a life raft, and there had to be life jackets provided. Well, of course, the Eastland was not outfitted for 2,500 passengers. So it added very heavy lifeboats and life rafts to the top deck. So if you can picture a very narrow bottom boat, heavily loaded with these extra um, lifeboats and life rafts at the top of a ship. Now already it sounds pretty precarious, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. Very yeah. Top and then they tipsy turvy, a, as they say, right? Yeah. Right. right. It, had, it was called the crank of the lake, hmm. and I guess the crank means it was kind of a wobbly ship. Mm-hmm. They had that kind of already had that kind of name to it, nickname to it. But um, in the middle deck, the tween deck, the cabin deck, um, uh, there was a uh, dining room. And over the years, the boards in the dining room floor became warped. And so the owners of the ship, in all their brilliance, um, replaced the wooden floor with concrete, if you will. So they added, again, this heavy weight to the top of this narrow bottom boat. So the, the Eastland was, in, a, in essence, a disaster that was waiting to happen. It, it was never... Uh, if it was going to happen, it was when it was going to happen. Well, it's certainly uh, terrifying images. Uh, obviously, you go into the sights and sounds, uh, even of the dead and dying victims. This is pretty gruesome. And, and yet, at the same time, uh, you tried to counter all this tragedy with the el- elements of romance, love, and enduring friendships. Now, that, that's quite a combination. It, it, it was, and I, I couldn't imagine my readers just plowing through just something so intense as the real situation was. And yeah, So I wanted this real strong friendship between Dee and May and wanted the love interest of Carol. And, of course, there's another handsome stranger that comes in and makes a triangle love affair between Dee, Carol, and one of the sailors aboard the Eastland, Lars Nielsen. So in her case... As much as a terrible, unbelievable, uh, frightening experience, uh, somehow D D survives. She does. She does. I wouldn't have a story. Um, but that's all I'm going to tell you. I'm right. not going to tell you about any other character, sure. right? Okay. Um, but she does survive. And so she has. Um, she takes us through the events of the next 10 days. And the story goes for 10 days, um, from Saturday the 24th until um, Monday the 2nd of August. And um, the reason I, I discovered that, Steve, is I, when I started my research, I was reading the newspaper headlines, the Chicago Tribune, the Chicago Daily News, and just to see what was being covered on the story. And they led me through the plot of the story. They told me what happened each day, what was going on, how they found the dead, where they laid the dead out, how they wake the dead, how they bury the dead. And then, of course, what happened at Western Electric, who lost nearly 500 employees in one blow. 500? And out of what, 5,000? Yes. Well, huge, huge, uh, obviously uh, an employee number, but amazing for one company to, I mean, it almost sounds like 9-11. It does. I thought of that in my own head. It was like 9-11. You know, once there was somebody there and now there wasn't all of a sudden. Right. But what was hardest hit were were the women's departments. Um, Western Electric was was way ahead of its time. It had insurance benefits. It had women's departments. It had education for its employees. It had a hospital on their campus. It had a bowling alley. It had um, 
you know, exercise grounds, and it, it was just a, a school. It was a fabulous company to work for, and um, it had the women's departments were hardest hit because, as I said, the boat. Everybody wanted to get on their boat. You have the day for romance. Here were these young women who worked so hard all the time, never had time to meet a man. So this picnic was the one and only opportunity. So it was heavily loaded with young single women who could get up early and get to the boat. And so you have departments at Western Electric that are missing almost all their employees, if you can imagine. Well, you get into some gruesome details, but at the same time you say, I had a great time with the final chapter. Now, you're not going to give us the details of the final chapter, but I find that interesting, your, your reflection on that. I actually had the last line of the book in my head before I wrote it. And so I just had to get to that last line, Steve. I had to get through all those pages to get to that last line. (laughs) So I knew I I wanted to leave my readers with hope. I'm not going to say what happens, but we want Dee to have some hope. We want the readers to have some hope. And, of course, life went on after this, and Western Electric you know, stayed into business until the 1980s. So, you know, things went on and life went on, and I wanted the readers to understand that even through a disaster of this magnitude, and there are disasters today, but many of us aren't going to face an Eastland-sized disaster in our lifetime. But if those people could get through it, we could get through it. Marion Manso Cheatham has been explaining her book, Merely D. Marion, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's online right now, um, iUniverse.com, Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, and I understand it'll be on the shelves of Barnes & Noble very soon, um, hopefully April or May. Um, And you can get it really anywhere online right now. Sounds like a movie to me. It does, I'm hoping. Really? You know anybody? (laughs) Spread the word there. Spread the word, yes, yes. Well, thank you so much, Marion, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you, Steve. I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very much. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.